You can't always set goals that are achievable or, or you won't be great. You, you have to push to, to try to do something bigger and harder than what you think you're capable of to reach your full potential. So accept the challenge and, and go out and, and chase, chase what, whatever it is that you want to accomplish. Hey there, I'm Mark Minner of First Person Advisors. Welcome to Human Resolve, the podcast designed for the unsung heroes of the workplace, HR professionals like you. Each time we gather, we cover the highs and the lows, hits and misses, and everything in between. you into another episode of Human Resolve. Mark Minner, President and Chief Strategy Officer at First Person, joined by fellow Bulldog, Ed Carpenter. I'm really excited about this conversation today, Ed. Those of you familiar with the racing world, familiar with sports in general, familiar with Indianapolis, you certainly know the name Ed Carpenter. Ed Carpenter, driver, owner at Ed Carpenter Racing, 19th season in the IndyCar circuit. And Ed, uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about your accomplishments, including the 23 top 10 finishes, the fact that uh, there are only 10 drivers that have had three pole winners in Indy 500 qualifying events, and you're one of the 10. And not only that, a multiple-time winner in IndyCar, and uh, we could go on and on. I think we're going to not necessarily dive exclusively into the racing side of things today on the track, but also off the track in your journey being both race car driver and an owner. But uh, first off, Ed Carpenter, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Have you have you had another bulldog on the podcast before? You know, I, I don't believe we've we've had a bulldog on. So this is, I got to be honest, this is really near and dear to my heart too. Obviously, Ed and I share an, an absolute love of Butler University. Ed, a 2003 graduate. So building the Butler brand. That's something we probably have to talk about after this too, Ed, or we're going to end up dedicating yeah, 60 minutes to, to, to Butler University. But let's start here, Ed. People out there, when they hear the name Ed Carpenter, they know of your ability on the track. They know of your influence in the community. They know the fact that Ed Carpenter Racing exists. They may not know the journey and how that got started, how you got into motorsports in general, but it was really like a lot of drive from a very young age, you, you started to get into racing and, and you learned to love the sport and you were pretty darn good at it. It's interesting. I'm, most of the drivers in IndyCar, or if you look at NASCAR, any high level motorsports, everyone started young, anywhere from four or five. The oldest you'll see people starting is kind of a willpower, I think was 13 or 14. Joseph Newgarden was 12 or 13, 14, somewhere in there as well. That's like on the late end for starting, which I guess is in line with other sports as well. You know, everyone starts pretty young, but it's definitely hard to get in later. And as you mentioned, yeah, I got, I got into it when my mom remarried to my now dad, Tony George, and our family had ownership of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Holman and Company, Cotter Real Baking Powder, the IndyCar Series. So when they got married, I was asked if, along with my brother, Tony Jr., if, if we wanted to try racing quarter midgets and I, I jumped all over it and never looked back. And when you started getting into racing, what was it about the sport that drew you to it? It's fun first off, <laughs> but you know, for me, 
I don't know if it was luck or skill or a little bit of both, but I, I had a fast start. I won my first five races that first year in quarter midgets. And I think, I think that set the hook. Like I said, there's probably a lot of factors. I had a good car. I must've done an okay job and maybe the competition those first five weekends wasn't great or something. I honestly don't remember a ton of details about, about those first five races, but yeah, it set the hook pretty hard for me. You've got your Hoosier humility in there from a young age as well, apparently. But so you get out there, you start, you start competing, you start winning. And at that moment, I assume that that's what you wanted to do as a kid. Like that's all you want that kind of consumed you, I'm sure on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it was definitely always a focus and priority from very early on. I was involved in some other sports, baseball, soccer, basketball. By the time I was in middle school, I had stopped everything other than racing and basketball. I continued to play basketball through middle school. By the time I got to high school, I was just racing, not participating in any other sports anymore. And, you know, really was hoping to skip my collegiate career and just kind of be a full-time driver out of, out of high school. But my parents guided me another direction. And I'm very thankful for that decision that they led me to, because I, I don't think I would be in the position I'm in now had it gone another way. You end up going to Butler and getting that degree when you were in college. And again, not every race car driver goes to college, you know, just like other sports too. You've got athletes that go directly into that world how tough was that to balance? And what did you learn during that time trying to balance both being a student and a professional athlete? It definitely wasn't easy. You know, I think my GPA probably was reflected <laughs> you know, during the race season. And, and then I had really had to rally and bring things back up in the off season of racing. But for the most part, it, it was difficult from a time management standpoint, getting all my work done. I probably missed more normal student events, you know, cause I was gone so many weekends, but it was a great experience. The, for the most part, the professors and, and everybody were, were really understanding and work with me. And, you know, Dean Fetter was, he was the Dean of the business school at the time. He, he was a great resource and, and a great help. I think it was like week two, my freshman year, I got an email that I was to go see Dean Fetter. And I was <laughs> like, Oh, like, what, what is this? Like, I didn't what did do I anything. Do? <laughs> I haven't cheated on anything. Like I've done nothing wrong yet. And he called me in and just wanted to like welcome me to to the business school and you know let me know that he was a race fan and you know if there's anything I ever needed to to reach out. And that was really cool. Someone I kept in contact through my whole college career and I haven't talked to him. I need to reach out to him actually, but you know, <laughs> we've been in contact since I've left Butler and he's been on on into other things as well. But great, great guy. During your TED talk, which was, which was terrific, TEDx Indianapolis. And one of the things you did mention during that, during that time, Ed, was that you, you got a little challenged by one of the, the professors during your time at school about your, your future aspirations. Yeah. So we didn't talk about this before, but yeah, it wasn't my TED talk. So at the time that I was at Butler within the business school, you could be a marketing major, finance, accounting, international business. But there was like an intro class to the business school that kind of took you through all of those opportunities. And one of the first assignments we had was to, to write a five-year success plan. And there really weren't any guidelines other than where we wanted to be in five years and how we were going to get there. And I obviously wrote a paper largely 
based around my racing career and kind of tied in how my time at Butler was there to complement that and, and be kind of a, a plan B. Yeah. I'll never forget it. I got a D on that paper and he told me that it was nice to have dreams, but you need to be more realistic. And so that was, that was 1999. And I started my first IndyCar race in 2003, right? Summer after I graduated Butler and started my first Indianapolis 500 in 2004. So technically I was a little under a year ahead of schedule. So, and that coincidentally, I don't know if I mentioned this in the Ted talk, but that, that professor later in my life reached out to me trying to see if I could help his daughter get a job at a business that I didn't work at. I probably wasn't as helpful as I should have been. <laughs> Did you make sure you, you let the professor know that you had in fact finished the assignment? I politely forwarded them the contact at HR that the company <laughs> was inquiring about. You mentioned that you go right after graduation and you go, you, you did what you needed to do. You went to college, you got the degree, you got the experience and boom, you're off to the races quite literally. What is that experience like at that age, getting in the car, starting to try and find your way in the series? It was a pretty wild time in my life. There was a lot going on. It all really started about two weeks before I graduated from Butler. Obviously, graduations in May before the Indy 500. And that, that was the first year of what was a race called the Freedom 100, which was an Indy Lights race, Carb Day, I guess it was, or maybe it wasn't even Carb Day then. But anyway, Indy Lights race in May before the big show. Uh, I was driving for AJ Foyt, won that race. So I put my name on the inaugural race winner list at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway with Ray Haroon and Jeff Gordon and Michael Schumacher. That race is now no longer there anymore, but it was a big win for me and really started to open up some opportunities to, to run some IndyCar races sooner than I probably expected. So there was a guy that used to work at IMS Productions. He's no longer with us, Buddy McAtee, and he helped me put together some funding and ended up running three races at the end of the 2003 IndyCar season, as well as the Indy Lights races. So I was doing double headers and performed well enough in those to, to get some opportunities to, to go full-time in 2004. So I have so many great memories from that time, the last couple of weeks of college, which is a blast anyway, to graduating, to, to winning, winning a pivotal race in my career. And went on went on the first date with with my now wife Heather, all in a matter of two weeks. So it was a really important time in my life. And of course, the biggest win you had that year was was Heather, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Where I wouldn't be where I am with without my parents guiding me to Butler, and I certainly wouldn't be where I am without Heather keeping me on on track. A wonderful family, Ed and. With three kids as well. Subscribe to the 11 out of 10 six star three thumbs up boost, a weekly newsletter for superhuman resource leaders that covers everything you need to know to take your HR career to the next level. Subscribe at firstpersonadvisors.com slash boost. So you go to 2004, you're in there, you're excited. This has been your goal that you're You've wanted to do this. You've wanted to get in the car. You've wanted to be on the series. What was the emotion when you're in there? I mean, is it just excitement? Are you understanding the pressure you feel under from sponsors and from other stakeholders? What What is that experience like? It's very overwhelming coming in as a rookie 
it was then it is now at the time. So my first full-time opportunity was driving Freddie Cheever. We were sponsored by Red Bull. There was a lot of pressure that came with that. The team was kind of at a, a rough point in its career, I would say, looking back. And, and it was a challenging year, partly because I was a rookie, partly because things that the team was going through, pressure from, from the outside, from the sponsors, and pressure you put on yourself. But I wouldn't say it was a successful year. We had a couple highlights, but a whole lot of those definitely taught me a lot about myself. It was really my first glimpse into to what an IndyCar operation looks like and what I thought was working well in that first team I was a part of. And, and also, you know, I learned, I probably didn't realize the lessons I was learning at the time, but as I, as I got further down the road, being involved in, in more teams and, and ultimately ownership, there's still a lot of things that I look back upon from that first year that also had a part in shaping how and why I do some things that we do now. You said that was a tough year. Then you go into vision racing and you, and you go through that experience for the next you know, four, four or five seasons. And, and you look at that journey and what that stop taught you before you started ECR. And, and I know the end of that with the sponsorship of Mark Menards and, and just winding down vision, right? What did that teach you that you're able to take away into now being an owner in ECR? Yeah. I mean, we went from, from a team that acquired a, a team that had gotten out of the sport. So we, we bought a bunch of assets and a race shop and had to build it into something in a, in a short amount of time. And we're doing our best to, to try to get results and grow that business which was a fun and educational process. Then ultimately winding it down, helping inform people that, that we were closing doors and closing down the shop and getting rid of assets and moving assets, storing assets, securing IP, a little bit of everything. It was an educational experience, but also very difficult. It's hard being in a room with a, a group of teammates that, that you've gotten close with and feels like family and all kind of scattering in different directions. We did our best to try to try to help people find, find new homes. And most of the people are still around and still friends with a lot of them and, and work with some of them again now. So you go from being in the, just in the driver's seat, being involved a little bit in the management side, and then how does ECR get formed? What is that experience like? And how did that all come together? We essentially shuttered Vision Racing at the end of 2009. We kept a car, kept a couple people. In 2010, didn't really have anything going, but we were trying to figure out a way to run in the Indianapolis 500. Ended up meeting a guy named Stuart Reed, who was partners with Fuzzy Zeller and Fuzzy's Vodka. It was kind of the dream scenario. First meeting, get a commitment to get some backing to go to Indianapolis in a kind of a vision racing slash Panther racing operation. We brought some equipment, a couple people, they, they staffed the rest of the personnel had a successful Indy 500. I think we qualified ninth or 10th. We're running competitively all day, really good experience for, for the sponsors and kind of parlayed that into, I think we did three more races that season with, with fuzzies on board and out of that, ended up getting an opportunity to go drive for Sarah Fisher in 2011. She had made the decision to retire after 2010 and hired me to, to drive her dollar general car. 
wasn't a full season. We did 11 races that year. It was interesting because I was developing this relationship with, with Fuzzy's Vodka and had an opportunity to go drive for Sarah. And you kind of have to take the, the bird that you have in your hand at, at that stage of your career. So I made that decision to go go drive there and was hoping to keep keep Fuzzy's involved and maybe add on to the sponsorship to, to get some more races, get it closer to a full-time season. But with the relationship with Dollar General, they they weren't really on board with having a spirits company on the car at the time. I don't even know if they'd started selling beer and wine in their, in their stores, but they definitely didn't want to be associated with the spirits brand. So they weren't on the car. I had a personal relationship with them, had some sponsorship on my helmet. My helmet actually looked like a golf ball. <laughs> There's one behind me. This isn't on video anyway, so you can't see it, but yeah, helmet looked like a golf I, ball. I can confirm. You can see it. Yeah. So won my first race in 2011 driving for Sarah and towards the end of that season, you know, had a, a conversation about starting Ed Carpenter racing, which kind of, I ignored at first and Heather and I were on the couch watching TV. I can't remember, but it was probably something like the bachelor or bachelorette given <laughs> the time of night. Uh, and so you had the remote, you were in charge. Yeah. I don't know about that, but I, th- I think it was even, I think we were watching it on a TiVo and those existed prior to all the services having the ability to record shows. And so we were watching TV and got a phone call from the president of Fuzzy's Vodka. His name was Eric Timmerman. He was the president at the time. And Tony, my dad, Eric, who's the president, and Stuart Reed, who was one of the owners, were the old Ruth Chris on the north side, having a good time drinking some fuzzies. And Eric's like, hey, we're over here hanging out. Stuart says he wants to, to start a race team. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And he hands the phone to my dad and he's like, yeah, the Stuart wants to start a race team. I'm like, okay, cool. And I hang up, but it was probably 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night. And Heather was, she was like, what was that? And I was like, oh, they're over there hanging out at Ruth's and say they want to start a race team. And she's like, well, why don't you go over there? And I'm like, eh, it's late. They've clearly been into the product. I'll give him a call tomorrow and, and see if he's still serious. And so I called first thing the next morning and it wasn't the fuzzies talking quickly from there. We had started down the road of finding, finding race shop, putting deposits down on cars, trying to figure out what we we're going to call ourselves, which at Carpenter racing is where we landed because we couldn't agree on anything else. I didn't necessarily want to have my name on it, but it's who we are now. <laughs> so it all started with the awkward phone conversation that became real. And some, some product sampling as well. Yeah, there was a, there was a decent amount of that. <laughs> then you get that and you're, you're going forward. You've got the sponsor. You've obviously proved yourself to be a, a talented driver. Now you got to figure out how to be an owner as well. How do you get up to speed on that? How, how do you learn what it takes to, to do that side of things? I had somewhat been through the experience with, when we started vision racing. Yep. I didn't have ownership, wasn't exactly a partner in that business, but in a lot of ways it, acted like it and was, was there daily was part of the interviewing process of hiring key people. I had experience, similar experience from starting that team, but it was six years down the road from, from when that had happened. So in addition to that experience, I'd just been around and, and seen more, learn more, become wiser. I guess you could say I driven for another team as well, met more people. So there, there was a ton of experience drawing on that. It was great to 
to have Tony involved, who's still a partner in the team, just because he's such a great resource and knows everyone in the sport. The first thing we really had to do was outside of spending money and putting deposits down on equipment was to find a, a shop, a home location, home office. From there, it was really finding the right person to help us run the team and, and kind of lay our foundations and put the architecture together for how we wanted to build the team. I didn't want to have the sole responsibility of, of doing that, especially being in a dual role, still driving full-time. So we, we hired Derek Walker, who had been a team owner and kind of been through the whole, whole same thing. Similar experience to us, had a successful team, lost sponsorship, closed down shop, still had a lot of equipment, still had a building. That was a great, a great person for us. He, he definitely helped us lay foundations for, for what we are now and got us off and running and thankful that, that he worked with us those first couple of years. When we spoke earlier about some of the kind of ingest about some of the balance that you have to have being an owner and a driver that is real. Not everybody deals with that. To be able to parallel that for any other professional athlete to then also be the, I think back to the old player coach days in baseball, right? Where you had the, the manager and then they were actually out in the field as well. But take that to a whole other level because you're, you're leading an organization and you're also the one out there in the seat driving the car at over 200 miles an hour. And I don't know if you'd say you found the balance yet. Maybe you, you feel like you have... But what, what was that like trying to balance both of those two worlds and do it every day? It's a challenge. It, it especially was then and it, and it still can be now. Even when we were just when you're hiring people, you know, for me at the time, I, I was only, it was a one car team I was driving. So, you know, I remember one of our interviews with an employee who's still with us in the engineering department. One of his biggest concerns was, why are you doing this? Are you building this just for, for your career? What are you going to do if you decide to stop driving? So there, there was challenges of convincing people and, and selling people on what our vision was for the team and that it wasn't just about my driving career. It was about building a business that would hopefully take me into the, the rest of my career as, a, as an owner once I am done driving. So there, there's complications on that side of things. On top of just balancing, kind of having two jobs and two careers, one as a race driver and, and one as a team owner. But we didn't talk about this the other day, but, and I've been asked before kind of what, what the biggest thing that I took away from Butler was. And it really did help prepare me being a full-time student and being a full-time driver at the same time while I was there, because there's so many similarities and kind of how I had to multitask and prioritize my time manage my time back in those days, being a student and an athlete to now being an athlete and a, and a business owner. It's, it's different. I don't have to take tests as much anymore, but from how you split up your responsibilities and manage your time and, and focus, you know, it's very similar. And it's one of those things you, you're learning at the time and you don't really realize what it's preparing you for down the road, but it was very good, very good experience. What's the toughest thing about being an owner? toughest experience you've had since being on the business side of ECR? It's a sponsorship driven sport. We survive on, on raising money to, to put our cars on track. So that's the hardest side of it. It's a challenge for any sport to, to generate revenue from sponsorships. 
So that's kind of the the single biggest thing outside of being slow at Indianapolis that that will keep me awake at night if, if it does. Then from there, I would just say managing our people and what's going on, whether it's in the workplace or in an employee's a personal situation, whatever it may be. Before we started ECR, I was at a, a charity go-kart event with Tony Stewart. And it wasn't too long after he had started Stuart Haas racing with Gene Haas. And I was kind of picking his brain and asking him some questions. And he was somewhat questioning what I was doing as well. But that's that's one of the things that I that I really enjoy about being in this role, you know, it is the team aspect and and working working with our people and providing them with with an experience and, and an opportunity to feel comfortable in their work environment and you know feel like we're not only giving them a professional experience, but something that benefits their whole family as well. That's got to be one of the gratifying sides uh, to your point there about the ownership side. And, you know, you think about when, whenever that day is, when you, you want to stop racing and focus on the, the business side more, just the ability to truly impact people's lives. And I think that gets lost sometimes when you have people who are in maybe normal professional service type jobs or just you know, different organizations. And you think about motorsports, you think about professional sports, and you think about the athletic side, the stuff you see on TV, but, but there are the same challenges, the same opportunities, the same great people that work in those organizations that really allow for the opportunity to do that and the ability to help give them, you know, those jobs and, and grow the organization and help impact those lives. That's, that's gotta be one of the more rewarding parts, right? Yeah, for sure. Seeing people achieve their full potential and become empowered to take a project and run with it and really make an impact. It's, it's fun to see people develop. You know, we, we have people here that came in at an entry level position that are key employees now that, that really have a, have a large role. So that part's enjoyable on the driver's side, working, working with young drivers and, and helping them become better professionals. I enjoy that side of it too. Like I said, I'm, I'm blessed to be able to do, to do what I do and, been able to to do it with a lot lot of fun people. Wow. This episode is powerful. Are you feeling it too? Take 23 seconds. Seriously, we timed it. To leave Human Resolve a review on Apple Podcasts, we might just give you a shout out. Plus, more reviews means we get access to more influential, impactful people leaders from across the globe. It's a win-win. Thanks so much. You mentioned the highs that are really high and the lows that in motorsports can be super low. And you've lived through both of those moments throughout your career in an industry like motorsports, where it does have a feel of kind of a season, right? A year to year. And sometimes those are longer sponsorship agreements. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes things are more guaranteed. Sometimes they're not. And you see a lot of other organizations out there that are going through in this past year, especially they've had They've had tough seasons. They've had some very low lows, right? And they've had to work with those their organizations and leaders and owners have had to work with those people and sometimes had to lay people off, sometimes had to furlough and go through moments like that. As you think about what you've learned about the highs being so high and the lows being so low, how do you help people learn from your experience and what have you learned about being able to withstand both sides of the, the spectrum? It's a volatile industry to begin with. In a lot of ways, I think it prepares us to to manage years like 2020 
and and still dealing with it in 2021 probably a little easier because we're we're so adept at plans changing and making last minute decisions and everything's fast paced that we do and the car has to be on track when it has to be on track i'd like to think that's one of the skill sets that that we're very good at is just being able to to deal with deal with change and and drama and you know unforeseen circumstances but i don't think anyone was prepared for what we went through last year fortunately we, we were able to to keep our all our people on through the whole time which was great it was definitely you know there's a lot of conversations about which way it was going to go for me and and my style you know one one of the things that makes it easier is you know we we have about 40 people here full time and I'm present on mostly a daily basis unless I'm traveling but we we have a don't want to say an open door policy but there's a a lot of trust within the team I really try to keep our people informed especially when things are changing fast like they were last year just letting them know what's going on at times it seemed like it was hour to hour last year let alone week to week but just keeping them informed of of what I what I knew you know whether it was schedule changes or government changes protocols that we had to to adopt to get back open again you know but the biggest thing for me was just communicating with them there's so much nervousness that can that can happen in times like that and and lows or or when you lose a sponsor or something like that so in times like that i just think that transparency and and communication is about as the best you can do to to try to put people at ease even though in a lot of cases even when you're 100% truthful it doesn't necessarily put people at ease until there's enough clarity and finality to to know what the next step is by your nature you're a highly relational person you just talked about the ability to to be transparent to communicate to be open with folks as an owner i would think for somebody who is relationship driven and and somebody who is connected in the city one of the other challenges is is the people management side of things which you started to touch on and the idea that you know hey people are going to come and go but that doesn't necessarily make it easier in terms of relationships in a in a tight knit industry in a tight knit racing community how challenging has that been for you not just with drivers but with staff and with you know engineers and mechanics and folks that work all across the the organization what have you learned it's a really small world that that we work in i actually had a situation this week that i was even dealing with today we have an open position at the team currently we had an employee from colorado that younger guy towards the end of the off season just decided he he needed to go home he loved what he was doing but he just was really struggling being away from his family and had an opportunity to to go into a different industry at home. It was a good opportunity. So we parted ways on good terms. He's actually going to be coming back and helping us in May with the third car that we're running for Connor Daly. But anyway, so we had an opening from from that young man leaving. And at the end, we had an open test in Indianapolis, April 8th and 9th. And at the end of that test, we were approached by an employee from another team a team that that I have a history with and and have a good relationship with. And so Tim, my my GM, interviewed him that night and he called me and told me it went really well. You know, I think this guy's the guy that we're looking for. What do you want to do? I'm like, man, like I I really don't like hiring 
employees away from another team, especially right before the season's getting to start, especially when it's a team and people that I have a lot of respect for. So I just picked up the phone and called one of the owners of the other team and kind of told them what was going on. Didn't tell them who the employee was. I'm in a tough spot. You know, he, he fits the bill for what we need. He's going to be doing something else. He's unhappy working for you, which is an awkward conversation to have with a peer ultimately at another team. And he was like, well, hate to hear that, but, you know, really appreciate the call and you being above board with me. And I understand, you know, I know how hard it is to find, find people. You know, I know how hard it is to lose people. If you end up doing something, making a move on them, just you can give me a heads up to let me know so I can at least have a jump start trying to find a replacement. I'd appreciate it. That's just an example of something that, that comes up where, and it goes the other way too. We've had, we've had people leave to go to other teams and it's such a small community. In most cases, not always, you try to try to end things on good terms. Powerful. And obviously you're doing it right. You've got that, your reputation, things like, things like that. And I'm sure day to day, just like every other owner in the, in the world, you, you, you feel like there's a million things you, you could be doing better or, or ways to, to help folks. We're talking about 2021. We're talking about the month of May. Ed, what are you excited about right now for your team, for, for yourself personally, for your, your drivers? What is the outlook for this year? Yeah, we do so much work in the off season to, to try to turn weaknesses into strengths and not lose the strengths that are your strengths. And every off season, you feel like you've done a good job. You feel confident in the work that, that you've done, you know, whether it's work you've done in the gym training, work we've done with, with research and development and engineering for maybe developing a new piece for the car. One of the coolest things about IndyCar is it's such a diverse schedule. We have our first race this weekend. It's in Birmingham, Alabama at a permanent road course. We go straight from there to St. Petersburg, which is a street race, city streets in, in St. Petersburg, straight from there to, to Texas Motor Speedway on a on an oval super speedway. So it'll really take us that first three weeks of the season to get through each of the different disciplines that we that we race at to understand how we've done for for each of those types of venues. And then Indianapolis is its own beast. So I won't fully be able to answer that question until till we get through May. Yeah, that is one of the beautiful things about IndyCar and, and the way that the season starts up. And of course, the month of May, the pageantry, there's there's nothing quite like it that you can experience. Yeah, out there. and I, I certainly hope that that our mayor releases our crazy fans to, to come back and be with us again because it wasn't the same last year without him. Ed, when you look back at your time at Butler and you're writing that paper to the question of what, what do you aspire to be over a five-year plan for somebody who's out there right now and listening and, and writing their own paper about their dream. And they might be told, Hey, that's not super realistic. Well, what do you say to that, that student or that person out there? Well, first off, like whoever's grading you or judging you may not understand your situation one. So on one hand, you don't want to let them stifle you know, what you aspire to be or, or what your dreams are, even if it's well-intentioned. In that case, it made me angry. It also probably motivated me even more so. So I think deep inside all of us, if we're able to have honest conversations with ourselves, there's a time when, when you know deep down inside whether or not you're being realistic or unrealistic. And 
you can't always set goals that are achievable or or you won't be great. You you have to push to to try to do something bigger and harder than what you think you're capable of to reach your full potential. So accept the challenge and and go out and, and chase chase what whatever it is that you want to accomplish. And you've certainly done that. And Ed, I could tell you I am one of many that will be pulling for Ed Carpenter Racing and and you, my friend, Ed Carpenter, and this year's running of the Indianapolis five hundred and this year's season in IndyCar more broadly. So Ed, thank you so much for sharing your story. And it's amazing now with perspective that young Ed Carpenter that's out there, that's learning from Tony, learning from others, how to get out on the track and race and go do that. And here you are now counseling and mentoring and bringing other people up along in in their journey. It's just, um, it's a really cool way that, that that continues to come full circle, even though that's not full circle, that continues to come in that direction. Yeah, we haven't, hopefully it's not full circle just yet, but yeah, this is a podcast so you can't see, but I went from a all blonde hair Butler graduate to a mixed gray and blonde <laughs> hair now, that, and I'm proud of every one of them. <laughs> that's right. Well, I, I know along the way you've impacted a lot of lives and, and Ed, you're, you're going to continue to do that, my friend. Good luck this season. Thanks again for, for joining us and sharing your story. No problem. Thanks for, for having me on the show. The legendary Ed Carpenter driver, owner, Ed Carpenter Racing. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Human Result. Thanks so much for learning with us today. Did you enjoy the episode? Please share it along with someone you think would appreciate it. Subscribe and stay ahead of the curve with notifications of new episodes. Join the conversation and let us know what you think by tagging FirstPersonBA and using hashtag HumanResolve on social media. Oh,